I think there was actually a headline in the Daily Beast that was, and I'm saying this verbatim, what the f*** is wrong with Brett Easton Ellis? So I think if you've written a piece and you've titled it, what the f*** is wrong with Brett Easton Ellis, I, maybe I've done my job. I don't know. Hello and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special. We're joined today by Brett Easton Ellis, the author of, among other things, American Psycho and the brand new book, White. Brett, thanks so much for stopping by. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Ben. So I have to start with the most <clears throat> obvious question. So you've yes. you've now come out as anti anti Trump, and this has become your <laughs> calling card in the political world. Uh, How did you get to uh, your anti anti Trump stance? My anti anti Trump. Oh yes, okay. My anti anti Trump stance. Um, I didn't want to get involved with it at all. And somehow Trump forces everybody into this narrative that's about him. And I guess it started happening uh, really soon after he announced he was running for president in the summer of 2015, uh, when he came down that escalator in the Trump Tower. And I began to become uh, interested in how he was being covered. I can't say I was particularly that interested in Trump. Uh, Of course, I'd known about him since he emerged on the scene. And I even wrote about him in American Psycho where he is Patrick Bateman's father figure, where Patrick Bateman keeps wanting wanting to meet Trump, wanting to see him, wanting to know what restaurants Trump likes. It's throughout the book. It's about, Trump is mentioned about 40 times in the book. And that was because when I was doing research uh, on the book and I was hanging out with those guys on Wall Street, they all loved Trump. And it was something that was really, really kind of unsettling. They'd all read The Art of the Deal. Um, he was this aspirational figure. Uh, he had, you know, uh, this you know, beautiful women hanging on to him. He had this lifestyle that they all wanted to emulate. And I thought it was amusing to put him in uh, American Psycho. But that was really about all that interested me about Trump. Sure, I watched The Apprentice, which I somewhat enjoyed. And I followed his marriages and his children growing up. But I really didn't think that I'd have to engage with him on the level that we all had to. And I began to see how he was being covered Uh, in the summer of 2015 and into 2016. And there was this um, disconnect between who I thought Trump was and what he was trying to do and how the media was covering him. And it was disturbing and uh, and it was bothering me enough that I started to talk about it on my podcast. Uh, I also live with someone who is uh, about as far left as you can go. Uh, I, I would say borderline communist, millennial, and, he, um, and his overreaction to Trump also was troubling to me. I just couldn't understand how Trump could make people melt down and freak out in the way that some of them did. And I talk about this a lot in white, especially the elites especially the elites that I've written about most of my life in my fiction, having dinner with them and seeing them, you know, uh, get really incensed over the idea of Trump. And I'm talking about months, sometimes a year after the election. And it was, um, and so, yeah, I started talking about how I was, I guess I was uh, anti, anti-Trump, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I was pro-Trump. And I was never a Trump supporter. I didn't vote for him. Um, but there was something so bothersome, so high-pitched and hysterical about the reaction to him that it was, quite frankly, beyond annoying. And that's um, that's covered in, in, in white. And I, and I, I talk about uh, this a lot on my podcast. What is it about Trump that causes uh, such massive TDS? The impression that I get for a lot of these folks is they consider themselves sophisticates. And here comes along this kind of boorish fellow from New York who doesn't play by any of their niceties. 
And it's like they mask their hatred for the affectation with a hatred for his supposed politics. So I remember I was sitting at some lunch with, with David Mamet, actually, and we were in, you know, the middle of, of Santa Monica. It's a beautiful day outside, and it's the middle of the day, and yet in Santa Monica, everybody can take lunch off, so everybody's enjoying themselves, right. having a $200 bottle of wine. And we're talking about Trump, and we we're noting to each other that if we said his name, people would pretty much start screaming aloud and talking about how the end of the world was nigh <laughs> in the middle of this beautiful restaurant in Santa Monica because oh, yes. they just had to save America. And it's just... It is bewildering living out here, and you deal with these folks a lot more than I do in Hollywood, but this this notion that they're saving the world by being part of the resistance, where where is this coming from? Um, that's a very good question, and it has to stem from something about, I and I truly believe this, Trump's aesthetics. I'm not even sure if it's his policies. I'm not even sure if it's even whatever ideology uh, he might or might not carry with them. It really seems to be aesthetics. It seems to be that this boorish clown, uh, you know, uh, walked into the china shop and started knocking things all over the place with his orange skin and his weird hair and his, uh, you know, uh, this kind of persona that, look, I have always said you just cannot take Trump literally. If you take Trump literally, your head is going to explode. You've got to understand the overall message that Trump is putting out there. Because in a lot of ways, he is really transparent. He is a transparent person on one level, even if he lies a lot. And you have to be able to juggle that and understand, okay, I get that when he's saying this, he's actually meaning this. When he's saying this, he's actually meaning this. So if you're going to let this aesthetic um, uh, really throw you so off course, then you've really got to, um, I don't know, take a big stiff drink at the bar and and start uh, realigning uh, how you feel about this person because it, it, what you're reacting towards and how strongly you're reacting about it is just there's a disconnect. Also, he doesn't he doesn't care. I, I believe he doesn't <laughs> care. I know everyone says, oh, this is really getting to Trump. This is really going to upset him. This is really. I don't know how much, and I also don't know how much the resistance really uh, interests him at all. I mean, I don't how much he listens to 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 the resistance. But getting back to what you're talking about, I really believe it all stems from how he looks and how he acts. And maybe it was in a package like Mitt Romney, maybe right. it'd be easier to take. Well, well th- this, I think, is, is one of the, the keys to why Trump supporters, there's this huge disconnect. So Trump supporters look at him and they say, this man is as honest as the day is long. He's incredibly honest. He speaks for me. <laughs> Whatever he says that comes out of his mouth, at least he's being honest. And right. people on the left think that he is lying like a rug all the time. Yes. Everything that comes out of his mouth yes. is a lie. And people on the right say, okay, well, Barack Obama lied to us all the time also, and he didn't right. seem to have any problem with that, it's like everyone wants to treat Trump as something out of the box, when in reality, in political terms, he kind of is just a politician, right? I mean, he, he says stuff that's not true, but he says it in the service of whatever he thinks he needs to get done today. But the fact that he's so transparent about it and non-smooth about it is what I think is sticking with a lot of folks. No, I agree. And I also think that there is just this, there's a stand-up comedian there that just drives people crazy as much as it makes people love him. And there's something about that um, that um, it's kind of accessible in a way, the way that Trump behaves and the Trump presents himself to people. He seems like uh, he or someone trying to be an everyman in a lot of ways, even though, of course, he probably sees himself much better uh, and on a much higher plane than the everyman. But um, I, I think there's something about that. that he, I mean, look, if you watch one of his um, speeches at one of these rallies, it really is kind of remarkable stand-up, and a lot of it is funny. That's the other thing. Regardless if you hate Trump or you find him repugnant, he's also funny. And oh, yeah. he's funny in a way that is 
you know, even as someone who is not a Trump supporter, there's some, he says some funny stuff uh, in a way that I've never seen a president in my lifetime. And I'm 55 and I've been around for, you know, whatever, many, many decades. I've never seen a president actually uh, behave this way. And again, you can either take it in, uh, in the way that it's simply offered or you can turn it into a disastrous, horrible narrative that's so full of darkness and is going to destroy the country and, if not the country, the world. And uh, you're going to be really unhappy. You're going to be a really unhappy person. Yeah, it's funny. When I think about Trump in sort of a cultural way, one of the things that I wonder if it, if this is what drives the left nuts is that he is the right answer to a bunch of things that the left really loves. So one is cultural dominance. The, the left is ascendant mm-hmm. in culture. Yeah. They dominate culture, particularly Hollywood, at nearly every level, which I'd like to talk to you about a little bit more in a second. And Trump is the right version of Hollywood, which is to say he was a D-list celebrity right. that, that was in favor of them, or at least not pissing on them. And yeah. they said, okay, well, okay, fine. He's our cultural guy. And the left one, this this, sh- this boob is your cultural guy. I said, well, right. hey, you're the one who cast him in The Apprentice and then made a thing of him for 10 years. At the same time, he is sort of the right answer to John Stewart and to John Oliver. Of course. You know, people who are this merger of politics and comedy who have decided that sometimes they're politicians and sometimes they're comedians and you're never going to be able to tell which one. And Trump is just that, except all the way. And then he's also the answer to the left's suggestion that they are in touch with the common man. And here's this guy who kind of runs around in this tie that's from the 1980s that's all the way down to his knees and is wider than the River Potomac. And he, and he you know, is, is our answer to... On the right, you know, the, the common man problem. And the, the left looks at this, and I think that it's almost like looking at this bizarro mirror image of themselves, and they don't like what they see particularly oh, much. Well, no, it's not only that, but you have to understand that in, in, in the movie that was playing out in 2015 and 2016, he also uh, beat the queen. He also beat Madame Hillary. And that is another... It was not only that he, that he won the election, but it, it was that it was him who won the election over her. And I think that is uh, the most painful aspect of it. It's not only that Trump to them is a big boob and he seems like a fool and they think he's going to destroy uh, America as we know it. It's that he stepped in place of her and that still must sting. And it still does for a lot of people I know. Even people I know didn't particularly like Hillary Clinton. But it's a, that's a very tough thing to swallow, uh, I think, on the left, as well as the idea that he came in and basically erased Barack Obama's legacy in a fairly short amount of time. And I remember I was sitting with someone, actually um, <coughs> a close friend of mine from college who had raised a ton of money for Hillary Clinton, Bel Air, Showbiz, Jewish, the whole package here in L.A., and I'd gone to college with him, very good friends with him, and, you know, he was somewhat disillusioned by, uh, of course, uh, Trump getting elected. But about a year later, we were having dinner uh, in a uh, restaurant in Beverly Hills with a couple of friends of ours, and he said, you know, I really can't believe it. How effective a president was Obama if Trump, of all people, can come in and completely erase this legacy? Maybe not effective at all. And I think that is an incredibly painful pill for the left to swallow. And, it's, and, and it makes them very angry, and it makes them overreact to things. And it's, um, it is, I think, part of the, uh, the narrative that, again, stings the most. So how do you get away with saying all this stuff? I mean, you work in Hollywood. You still work in Hollywood. You know what? I would say that I have always worked, I've been an outsider in Hollywood, that I work on the fringes. Uh, I work uh, in independent film. 
Uh, I'm not, uh, I've never been hired by the studios. Uh, I've written many, many TV pilots, uh, but nothing that has been made. Um, I have made a living in Hollywood, um, but I really have never seen myself as a player, as someone who is part of the scene. Uh, rarely go to parties, rarely go to red carpet events, uh, stop going to screenings. Um, and, I, and it's always kind of been that way. I've always, I've, I know a lot of people in Hollywood and I have a lot of friends because we all kind of grew up together. And uh, I mean, I can take a meeting, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I am working in mainstream Hollywood. Actually, a lot of people aren't working necessarily in mainstream Hollywood, especially if we talk about the movie business, because the movie business is really just about, you know, uh, a group of writers trying to make uh, animated animated films and, and Marvel movies. So it's not really as if there is this huge pool of screenwriters, like the ones who are writing movies for adults. I mean, a lot of the screenwriters I knew, who I came of age with, who were making really good money in the 90s and into the 2000s, now are, you know, I think one is uh, overseeing a diner in Ojai, another one is selling real estate in Boise. I'm not kidding. I mean, that is really where a lot of people went when everything kind of dried up in terms of being um, extremely well-paid for your screenwriting services. It really is not that lucrative anymore, and I can... Uh, probably do far better in books and writing uh, books than I than I can in terms of, you know, making a uh, a living as a screenwriter. So I look. I'm also not walking around town with a MAGA hat on, drooling and saying how much I love Trump. So it is, and a lot of people know me as being a bit of a contrarian and as someone who, um, you know, I, I don't consciously want to do it, but I guess go against the grain of whatever the collective group think in the moment is. And I think I'm known as that. And I've been known as that for many, many years. So I don't know if it's that shocking that I am anti-anti-Trump to, to a degree. But, you know, uh, that's what this book is about. And it's very interesting to see how the mainstream media did react to the book because they reacted exactly as I prophesied in the book, which is they're going to they, they went nuts. They went absolutely crazy. And I think there was actually a headline in the Daily Beast that was, and I'm saying this verbatim, what the f*** is wrong with Brett Easton Ellis? So I think if you've written a piece and you've titled it, what the f*** is wrong with Brett Easton Ellis, maybe I've done my job. I don't know. But I don't worry about it. I, I really don't worry about this notion. I mean, look, Hollywood is an extremely liberal enclave. But there are, there are little pockets of conservatives around there. And there, it's certainly... As I write about in white, um, not all of L.A. Uh, went blue. There was this little section of Beverly Hills that went red right above sunset, the northeastern edges of sunset. So, um, so I don't know. I, uh, I also feel that, you, that as someone who has a podcast and as a writer and a cultural commentator, that you have to be true to yourself. You simply have to and let the chips fall where they may. Look, I'm sure I haven't gotten a job because of what I talk about in white or what I've been talking about on my podcast for the last two or three years. Um, and I'm sure one or two things have been, have not moved forward uh, because of that. But on the other hand, uh, what do you do? Do you just become a pod person and just start, start spouting the group think and, um, I don't know, living a sad little life of <laughs> desperation, but it is true. I mean, I know, I know a couple of guys who were kicked off of a sports team 
in 2016, uh, kind of like a semi-celebrity, like writers, directors, that uh, because they were they cracked a couple of Hillary Clinton jokes in the locker room. I mean, that's how bad it can be. They were not asked back. So it, the town can can be that way, but it just seems. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's going to calm down and mm-hmm. go away, but uh, I don't know. Okay, so in a second, I want to ask you about you know the, not only how you've sort of been treated in the peer group, but also. Some of the things that you've said that have been seen as contrary, and we'll get to that in just one second. But first, let's say that today's podcast doesn't go well, and I need to hire somebody. Well, hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. Today, hiring can be easy. You only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest, because I have a guest. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlights the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the very first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest, B-E-N-G-U-E-S-T, ZipRecruiter.com slash Ben Guest. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire, which is why my employees should do a fabulous job today. Otherwise, we could be looking for a new employee at ZipRecruiter. Okay, so when we talk about the sort of cultural censorship in Hollywood, one of the things that you did on your podcast, you do in White, that I've not seen anyone else do, is you will honestly critique other artists, other people in the movies, You'll actually give your opinions about things, which is unique. I mean, I speak to a lot of conservatives who are in Hollywood, and many of them, even in private conversation, won't say anything about movies or about other people who are working or their skill sets, specifically because they're afraid of the blowback. Obviously, you've done that, and it makes you one of the more interesting kind of critics of of film. And one of the areas where where I've seen you do that repeatedly is on movies about folks who are gay in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. movies about race in Hollywood. So what's your approach to critiquing film? Because there's so much politics that's invested in this stuff. Well, if you you want that, what you're talking about, to stifle your real feelings about a movie, that's a problem in a way. Um, I... I don't think I'm ever mean. I don't think I'm ever purposely hurtful towards someone who created something or acted in something. I just give my honest reaction to what I saw and how I felt about it and what I th- what I'm thinking about it and what it what it uh, and how it and how it affected me. Um, that's all I'm doing. Um, and I really stress. Style and aesthetics over ideology. Movies are about style. Movies are about an individual filmmaker, I believe. And that the best movies are made with one person's vision. And the best movies are really, the message is in the aesthetics. The message is in the style. I am not a fan of movies that are all about ideology, that are about victimhood. And unfortunately, that has made it seem like I'm a homophobe, even though I'm a gay man, that I'm a racist, and that I'm a sexist, because I don't like the the kind of approach towards movies about gay people, about uh, black lives, and about uh, female empowerment, uh, unless it is folded into genre. And then I really do like those movies, but I don't like pure, pure message movies. And uh, every year, a lot of those get made, or maybe less so, but a lot of them get rewarded. 
And that's a little annoying, uh, you know, that representation becomes more important than how you make a movie is something that is, uh, has been bothersome uh, to me. And I talk about that a lot on my podcast when I'm talking about current movies. On this podcast that's about to be released, uh, I talk about uh, two, uh, I guess you'd call them female empowerment movies that are directed and created by women, Booksmart and Late Night. And one fails because it's all about ideology. It's all about the message of inclusivity, inclusivity and feminism and intersectionality and the workforce and how if someone comes in and wipes away all the uh, middle-aged white men, then everything is going to be so much better with this, you know, this diverse cast that's now at the writing table. That's late night. And the other movie, which is also written and directed by women and it has a female empowerment vibe, is a teen comedy. I prefer the teen comedy a lot more than I prefer the message movie. So, um, you know, you, again, you have to be comfortable with what uh, path you go on when you talk about movies. But I, but I, I appreciate people who are honest. I appreciate people who are honest about my work. I've lived with people who haven't responded to my work. I've lived with people. I live with someone right now who really hates American Psycho, the novel. <laughs> Doesn't like it at all. I'm completely fine with that. Um, I know people are sensitive, and I know people get a little touchy about things, but uh, I always, I hope that I come at uh, film with a certain intelligence and a certain knowledge, and that I know what I'm talking about, and that I'm not just there, like, saying how much they suck or how dumb this is, but that it is usually a kind of deep dive that treats the movie very, very seriously. Um, but, you know, again, if there's blowback on that, uh, that's something you also have to deal with. But I still have a lot of friends who are filmmakers who, whose movies I haven't particularly liked or producers who, uh, whose movies I haven't liked, and I'm quite honest with them. And it, it doesn't seem to hurt our relationships. It seems like particularly around Oscar season, there's always this attempt to award, as you say, all these kinds of films that you say that you don't like. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a particular irritation, I think, to a lot of folks, including people in mainstream America, which is where I think there's some crossover here. I think there are a lot of folks who look at the Oscars every year and they say, I haven't seen any of these films. And then I look at the Oscar previews and basically I can tell who's going to win Best Picture simply by looking at who checks the most woke boxes. If mm-hmm. the Moonlight was absolutely going to win the Oscar because mm-hmm. it was the wokest film that year, right. it was gay and it was black and it was impoverished. And there was no question that it was going to win the Oscar. And you see that almost every year. I mean, there are just certain films where it checks enough boxes that people can feel good about themselves in the Academy, never having watched it, but then having signed off on it on the envelope. And it's creating this massive culture gap between the stuff that people actually watch and then the stuff that this group of people want to be able to brag to their friends about. I mean, that's what it feels like from the outside. It feels like maybe this stuff is meaningful to the creators on, on a certain level, but on an artistic level, there are not a lot of people out there in the middle of the country who are desperate to watch Moonlight. That is not a movie that is going to pick up huge scads of people, nor is it going to do a whole hell of a lot for gay empowerment if nobody ever watches the film. Well, I think the problem with Moonlight, and I talk about this in my book, I mean, and, and, what, and what I'm shocked to find is that so few people have really seen Moonlight <laughs> is the other thing that's uh, strange, is that, um, you know, it's not necessarily Moonlight's fault, in a way, that it became embraced, this small little movie. I don't think it's Barry Jenkins' fault. I don't think he's pushing any kind of agenda. I think he made the kind of movie that he wanted to make. And I also think that sometimes we mistake all of this ideology in Moonlight. Yes, he's poor, he's gay, he's black. Um, uh, uh, he's an orphan, you know, to a degree. Um, his mother's a drug addict. 
Um, and we, and sometimes we miss the point that maybe it's really a movie about loneliness. You know, maybe it's just that. And I know people who really like the movie respond to it on, on that on that vibe. I also think that Moonlight became uh, inordinately rewarded uh, at that at those Oscars. I actually thought La La Land was going to win Best Picture that year. Um, I think what happened to the narrative of Moonlight is that it opened in such a fraught period in 2016 where it seemed like every week we saw black men shot on camera and the bodies just had piled up and it was just this uh, this inescapable thing and so when we see these you know uh, the vibrant bodies in Moonlight I think it touched uh, a chord and a connection was made in the entertainment press and then it seeped over into Hollywood uh, that this wasn't a movie about gay representation which it really was about being gay and it became a movie about black representation about black lives matters and I think that's what started the ball rolling for Moonlight. But it's true. It has to be a certain kind of movie, though, or else there's going to be a lot of complaints. And I think Moonlight is soft enough and innocuous enough that no one's really going to complain. about. no one got mad that it won, for example, Best Picture, unlike this past year when um, uh, Green Book won Best Picture and the entertainment press had a meltdown and uh, Hollywood in some way had a meltdown. I mean, if you were watching people's Twitter feeds, uh, who are mainstream critics or people involved in Hollywood? Involved in Hollywood a little less because they might have to work with these people and these producers. Um, it was it was as if that movie, which I do think has its own progressive elements, certainly the way that they deal with um, um, the gayness in that film seems very progressive in a way, where, because it just kind of shrugged off and and the main character uh, Tony Vallelonga, whatever, is not. Um, not bothered by uh, Dr. Shirley's gayness. And I thought that was a, a kind of a progressive step. But I don't know. It, but again, it is, that is the kind of movie uh, that is, um, is rewarded in Hollywood. But I have to say that I thought there was something about uh, Green, um, a Green Book that was very hopeful. It was out of all the black-themed movies last year, whether it was Black Klansmen whether it was sorry to bother you, uh, whatever they were, they were all hopeless. There was a kind of fatalism and a kind of negativity about them. And I think part of what made people like um, uh, Green Book so much is that it offered uh, a chance to mend, for people to come together. And I cannot believe that people just didn't want to hear that message. You actually don't want to hear that message and reward this. That was a very telling moment in the culture. Yeah, people when, were pissed. I mean, people were really pissed. I mean, there's a, there's a billboard out there on Sunset Boulevard of Trevor Noah for the Emmys saying, don't Green Book this thing. Right? He's now using it as a phrase. It's like you, you blew it if you give Green Book an award because there's this sort of view that this represents the baby boomer take on race, that it's like a Joe Biden take on race where we can right. all come together in the end and be friends. And in reality, we know after this many years that we cannot be friends, that there is no great coming together that can happen. So if you voted for this, you're voting for a fantasy. Whereas if you voted for Black Klansmen and Spike Lee, or if you voted for if Beale Street could talk, which wasn't up, but, but they think should have been many of these folks, mm -hmm. then that would have been a, a better representation of what race actually is in the United States. Well, the Academy is full of baby boomers, and a lot of people are making those movies. So it, didn't, it wasn't necessarily a surprise to me that that movie, movie, uh, that that movie won. Uh, but, but what was surprising was that I know so many people who liked it. I knew a lot of people who liked it, maybe secretly, and they were saying, I loved it. I loved uh, Green Book. It was like, and, and, it, and it made me feel good. It was, there, there, there was hope at the end that these two characters 
so divided, finally saw past her differences and got together. Sure, a fantasy, but at least there's a hopeful message there. And yeah, the movie is what it is. I mean, it's not a great film. It 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 it's kind of a middle of the road comedy. Um, but um, I don't know. I liked it a lot. And uh, and I guess I guess because it's under the guise of a kind of buddy comedy, and it, it and it has genre elements to it. Maybe that's why I liked it. I think that's why I liked the first half of Black Klansman. I think the first half of Black Klansman was a really good Spike Lee movie, kind of a throwback to seventies. Uh, black exploitation cop movies, and I really like the feel of it. And then it goes all spikely, and then it gets very ideological, and then all the Klansmen are watching The Birth of a Nation while he's giving a speech about a lynching he saw, and it just the movie just completely goes off the rails and becomes a complete ideology, losing sense of what I think movies do best, with, which is following their style and following... Uh, their aesthetics. Do you think that there is any sort of way that the the cultural gap can be bridged at this point? Because it feels like the vast majority of Americans want to watch Marvel flicks. I understand right. this is in the theater. If you're going to shell out twenty bucks, you want to see big explosions yeah. on screen and all of that. But it seems like there are only two types of movies that Hollywood is making: woke movies and giant spectacle movies, and nothing in between. It's basically the Poseidon Adventure or whatever yeah. is the wokest movie of the day. And there's nothing that just sort of is a broadly appealing nice movie unless it's a kid's movie. Like it's G-rated films or Avengers or something so woke that if you are a Bible Belt voter, the chances that you want to see it are, are, are at least relatively low. Well, I don't know. I mean, the problem is how well does uh, do these woke movies really do? And are they being made by Hollywood or are they being made on uh, the outside of Hollywood by independent production companies? Because I don't think Hollywood is really doing anything uh, at all except the movies you're talking about. And so you have the independent film scene which is making these movies and often a lot of the times for Sundance. A lot of these movies are made to premiere at Sundance and be dropped into the glow of the festival where you have writers there who are hyping up everything possible because, you know, they're, uh, the places they work for, they've got to justify going to Sundance. So they've got to, we found four major uh, amazing movies. And, you know, you're also mingling with filmmakers and you're also getting drunk at parties with all of these people. So there is this, there is an overinflated buzz by about a lot of the movies that come out of Sundance that is both a gift and a curse. Sometimes it's a gift because uh, in that heady atmosphere, People are now writing checks for $12, $13 million for, uh, for, to have the rights to release a movie. And then it's a curse because usually these movies come out and they completely bomb. So I don't know. But I, I do think the festival circuit is one of the reasons why so many of these movies are getting made. Because they get a lot of attention at, the, at those places. Um, I don't necessarily think that audiences are craving it. I think audiences are craving really good movies. And quite honestly, I think film critics are craving really good movies too. I just don't believe the film critic that says, oh my God, I just saw the most amazing thing at South by Southwest. It's this, you know, uh, Latina trans handicapped chick and her travails in her, uh, in her neighborhood. I don't believe he wants to see that. I think they want to see Saturday Night Live. Uh, they want to see Saturday Night Fever. They want to see Taxi Driver. They want to see. They don't want to. They don't really want to see that movie that's so humble and so woke. They want to see a real movie, movie. But we are in a place right now where, uh, in order to uh, be considered woke and maybe even hireable at some of these places, I think you have to overpraise certain movies that uh, don't deserve it at all. Yeah. So in a second, I want to ask you about that because the critics 
it seems to me you can almost, it reeks off of some critics when they don't like a movie and yet they are banned by the prevailing dominant Hollywood culture from saying so. Like you can read it. It's not even between the lines. It's basically seeping off the page and dripping down. I'm going to ask you about that in just a second. But first, part of adulthood is having to do things that you don't really want to do, like red-eye flights, working late, watching us, visiting in-laws, and getting life insurance. But another part of adulthood is learning to delegate what you hate. And while you can't delegate a visit to the in-laws, I know, I know, you can definitely delegate life insurance shopping. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for life insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. No sales pressure, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So if you need life insurance, but you just don't want to deal with all the legwork, head on over to policygenius.com. It's the easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. Policy Genius, delegate what you hate, especially if you hate getting life insurance. Be a responsible adult. Go get life insurance for yourself and your family. If you plot, you don't want to leave your family burying you in a pauper's grave than living in a hobo shelter, especially, again, if you hate getting life insurance, there's only one place to go, policygenius.com. Okay, so one of the things that you talk about in white is a little bit about sort of how the critics treat particular films and how if you criticize a film in an honest way, then this is treated horribly. Whereas if people go out of their way not to critique a film, but to talk about how important a film is, for example, or how bold a film is without mm-hmm. actually talking about the quality of the film, then this is the way to do it. The, the most recent example that I saw was the, the critical treatment of Us uh, by Jordan Peele, where his first movie, which I thought was you know effective, I didn't like it, but I critiqued it. I thought that it had serious racial flaws. I thought that it was actually racist in many ways because the implication of the film seemed to me to be that if you're a black person who's being dated by a white person and the white person's family tries to take you in, they're actually trying to steal your soul and make you not a person anymore and trying to trying to destroy you as a human. I had serious problems with that premise, but the film itself works and is good. So Get Out, at least I thought, was, was well made. The critic's treatment of us made me not want to see it because the critical treatment of us was he's such a great filmmaker, Jordan Peele, and he's got so much potential and while he didn't fulfill all of his potential here, he has some important things to say. When people say has some important things to say, I immediately signal this is a bad film. Why are, why are so many critics hesitant to actually just critique a film? You didn't want to see a horror movie about income inequality? <laughs> you weren't interested in seeing that movie? Um, look, look, let's just be real here. My favorite show on television is Atlanta. I think Atlanta is absolutely a knockout. I think it's beautiful. I think it's brilliant. And it's all about style. It, it, it laces its ideology and its commentary through a beautiful style that is enveloping, that is rich, that is deeply moving. Um, I think that when you get down to, again, a kind of pure ideology overtaking your film or your content, you have a real problem there. And I do think, again... Um, you know, uh, look, I got called out as being racist when I said something about Black Panther on my podcast. 30 seconds on my podcast. I said, some, <laughs> I said something about Black Panther. I said something about I'm sick of Disney or Marvel, you know, pushing this movie as a masterpiece when, of course, we're pushing it because it's a first because it's about representation. And apparently no one heard me talk about how I loved the opening images. Uh, images of Wakanda, and I thought the blackness was the most interesting thing about the movie. It just is another subpar Marvel movie, and that's that's what it is. And we just can't really pretend that doesn't exist. Or you can, if you want. 
Um, but I do think the most, it was the most disturbing thing uh, this year was the critical reaction and evaluation of us. It was um, a, uh, a moment where you realize that there's another world. There's a this secret world where everyone is either so scared of not calling out something uh, on what it is, because I really don't know anybody who liked us, and I know a lot of people who went and saw it. Um, and I think that it, we're, it, we were in, we're in this land where the critical consensus had to be that, that if you didn't love the movie uh, and treat it with the utmost seriousness, which I'm not sure it really deserves, um, you were going to be not only not woke, but you were also going to be racist. But this whole thing of being racist for not liking black theme content or not liking a black movie has really spread out into the whole society. So every everything is now racist. Everyone is now racist. Uh, you're racist. I'm racist. K- Katy Perry is racist. Bette Midler puts out a tweet. She's racist. I mean, it, it, we've gotten into a world where real racism seems to be like, you know, so diluted and watered down, and we're now talking about it in cultural events and people reacting to movies or a pair of shoes or whatever. We've really lost control of that narrative. But getting back to what you're saying about us, I think that was the moment this year where you realized that there there is a team and that they're all playing kind of the same game. Even in a, in a critic that I really like, I like Anthony Lane, who writes for The New Yorker, I just knew Us was absolutely not his kind of movie. And you could see the path he took in order to craft that review of Us. Very careful. Doesn't coming right out and saying anything about it. Stuff that I know, because I've been reading him for 30 years, that he wouldn't like. Uh, Maybe he had to write it for The New Yorker. Maybe The New Yorker, that's what you, you know, that's the new um, command that you better like material like this. So how did you get into this industry in the first place? I mean, how did you get into writing? You talk a lot in White about your childhood and how you sort of inculcated the films of the of the early 80s and the late 70s. How did, how did you get into doing what you do? Um, well, first off, growing up out here, uh, all of my peers and I wanted to be filmmakers. We all wanted to make movies. Uh, it is, in some sections, a company town, much like Flint was a company town, whatever. You grow up out here, uh, you have connections to the movie industry, you want to make movies. And you have to understand that the TV industry wasn't much of anything then. It was, you know. Um, so we all wanted to make movies. And um, what happened was that I was also writing books. And so I wrote a novel uh, called Less Than Zero during this time, during my adolescence. That was published when I was 21, and that became uh, fairly successful. And then it, I wanted to write other novels. So the whole idea of going to film school, uh, which I decided not to do and went back east to college um, uh, was out the window and I thought I could finish all of the books that I wanted to write in about the space of 10 years. It ultimately took about 25 or 30 years to write those books and it wasn't only, it was really only until about 10 years ago, 12 years ago that I got back into wanting to make movies and the goal was never to be a screenwriter. I mean, I grew up out here, I knew that the screenwriter thing was just, you know, it was a, it was a lucrative business, very lucrative business in the 70s and into the 80s um, but it wasn't filmmaking. It was this kind of very boring pedestrian job that you do. Um, And I can't imagine being creatively satisfying. And it's really not creatively satisfying. So it was always about filmmaking. And what happened was that the kind of movies that I want to make, um, they stopped making. But I still want to make those movies. So finding them, I was just on the phone with a financier and my producing partner this morning. And yeah, we can get a lot of the money from Europe 
Um, maybe some from here, but uh, the goal was always ultimately uh, to make movies. And so when I came back out here, uh, after being away, writing my novels in New York for about uh, 25 years, uh, I got involved producing and writing a movie called The Informers, which was based on a book of mine. And it had, uh, it was, it was at the end of the expensive indie which meant an expensive indie could cost $20 million, and no one would really blink an eye on that. In the early 2000s, that was a possibility. Unthinkable now. And um, it, was, uh, it was, let's say, a very fraught production, a very long production, uh, very big cast, uh, and it got ruined by the money people, producers, a whole host of reasons. And uh, it kind of soured my feeling about making movies. Um, but... You know, I still, I still, I mean, I grew up in that era. And getting back to your, uh, your initial question is that I grew up during the 1970s in this movie mad era, where great movies, great American movies, were appearing in theaters almost, if not monthly, then weekly at, cer- at certain stages during that decade. And that was the prime time. That was when I came of age with my friends, and so we all became infected by the notion that you could make movies as great as, as these movies uh, were. And, um, and, and I have to say, all of my friends did get in, into, into the movie business. And so, you know, you end up in the movie business and you, you do some screenwriting, you do some fiction writing, now you've done nonfiction writing, so which do you prefer? Um, look, uh, I still, I, look, I've directed some, some commercials, I've directed a web series, um, I've directed a few short films. Um, I like doing that. Once you start doing that, you kind of get bitten, and you want to keep doing it. Um, so that's, but they're all enjoyable to one degree or another. Let's let's make make it clear. I think writing non, I thought writing this book was far more enjoyable than I ever thought it was going to be, because essentially when you're writing a book, it's a literary experience anyway. It, it still is. I mean, we're, it, it's like writing fiction in a lot of ways. Um, you know, you you want the words to sound right. You want the paragraphs to be clear. Um, you want the narrative to connect to a reader. Um, so uh, I, I find them all pleasurable. I, I, I wouldn't do any of them if I, if I, if I found, found like maybe one more pleasurable than the other. I find them all pleasurable. So when you're writing, sort of what's your schedule and how much do you go over and polish your prose? What, what's sort of your, your, your mode? How do you, what's your style when you do this? I have to uh, uh, adhere to a schedule. I have to adhere to basically a 9 to 5, 10 to 6, uh, maybe 11 to 7 uh, schedule where I do write every day. Uh, I have my morning ritual, and then I'm in my office, and then I take a break. I either go to a, the gym or I'll go to a movie, uh, and then I'll come back and I'll work the rest of the afternoon up until about seven or so, uh, and then you know have a cocktail or whatever. Um, but I I I like adhering to that schedule, and I pretty much have always followed it. If I'm getting toward the end of something and I'm completing it. Uh, I might be working uh, longer hours because I'm just excited about the prospect of finishing finishing the book. But um, and I've always worked that way. I've always worked that way since I uh, was uh, um, writing my uh, novels in New York. So in the book, you talk a little bit about David Foster Wallace, and I'm curious, what which are the writers that that in kind of contemporaneous writers or, or older writers that you actually like versus some of the ones who you think are, are overrated? Because you're very critical, obviously, of his. Of his writing. Well, you know, it's it's I'm I'm critical of again of, a, of an overreaction to David Foster Wallace, and I'm, I'm and I'm reacting toward um, a rewritten construct of the man. I think the man was a far more complicated, a much darker person, 
and kind of like a like an ass, very unlikable. But he became kind of a self help guru for a lot of kids, especially after the suicide. And he had done this commencement speech that went viral. That was very hard to stomach. It was you know very aspirational, and I don't know if David really believed in it. But um, uh, that's a good question. The well, look, the writers that meant a lot to me. Um, you really only need two, two or three. You don't need more than that. Everyone says, oh, who are all the influences? Well, I think at a certain point, obviously, when I was very young, it was Hemingway, and Hemingway uh, really opened the door, made me want to be a writer. Uh, I love the writer Joan Didion. Her nonfiction essays uh, and her journalism were hugely impactful, very influential. Um, and I write about her in the book uh, in white as well. Uh on, a, on one kind of level, Stephen King's novels were when I was an adolescent. I came of age right when he started. So I read Carrie when I was like 10, Salem's Lot when I was 12, The Shining when I was 13. I read that like five or six times. And, and The Shining actually is an influence on a book of mine called Lunar Park, which is kind of an homage to Stephen King. Um, but then I also was uh, young enough, well, I was, it, I, it was the right period, and minimalism had spread throughout American fiction. So people like Raymond Carver, uh, to a degree Don DeLillo, uh, this was happening in the early 80s, and that uh, was definitely a, uh, an influence on Less Than Zero. But then, of course, they're just writers that I love. I mean, I love Tolstoy, I love uh, Flaubert, um, I love Joyce. I mean, there's just a lot of, uh, I just, I love, I love books. I love novels. And so one of the terms that you use in the book, uh, you use specifically with regard to your partner, yeah. Isaiah, who's much younger than you are. And so you yeah. talk about him as a member of sort of the millennial generation, you call it Generation Wuss. What are the characteristics of this generation? What the hell do you think happened? All right. Well, what happened was, uh, first of all, it was nothing to be taken seriously. It was kind of a joke. And I started to talk about this on Twitter when I was tweeting a lot more than I do now. And I just noticed that when we uh, started hanging out and we started living together that he was triggered by a lot of stuff that just did not trigger me at all. And we got into this terrible fight. Our first fight was about uh, the Tyler Clemente, Ravi Durham case where he uh, one college kid pulled a prank on another college kid causing the other kid to commit suicide. And I could not believe that the, how minor this prank was caused a kid to kill himself. It was outrageous to me. There was something wrong with the kid. And my partner said, uh, no, I completely understand that. That is a violation. That should never have happened. This was a private moment for the other kid who committed suicide, blah, blah, blah. And I just couldn't believe that I was uh, listening to this. And then there were a lot of other things. There was a kind of passive-aggressive positivity that I knew was kind of not real. There was this unwavering belief in uh, all things inclusive, all things diverse, a kind of utopian attitude that I just seemed so unreal to me that there's that this was just some kind of fantasy life, and there was also this kind of deep-rooted shame about everything. About I think a lot of it connected to exhibiting yourself on social media and being being like everyone is criticized relentlessly. So he was kind of crippled by all of these things, not to the point that he couldn't get out of bed or anything, but it it was a vast difference between his generation and my generation. His was kind of a touchy-feely millennial generation, and I, of course, came out of Gen X, which is very cool and ironic, and I'm not saying cool in a, you know, cold, let's say cold, uh, and um, aloof and ironic and nihilistic. 
And I do think that the millennial generation is, for all their annoyances, all the things that I find annoying about them, um, is a reaction against that, is a reaction against Gen X thinking and uh, the Gen X mindset. And I think the reaction uh, that millennials have to this section in white, it has been hysteric. I mean, absolutely hysteric. The, the millennial reviewers um, have one, uh, one transgender millennial reviewer got so upset with this book that uh, she wrote, I think, a 3,000, 4,000 page review talking about how old I am, how irrelevant I am, how white I am, how unwoke I am. And she kept repeating this over and over and over in the most hysterical language possible for 4,000 words. So that seems to me to be exhibit A of what I'm talking about when millennials have this overreaction to something. And so, but I guess she didn't read the final section of that particular section where I talk about why I'm sympathetic to them as well. So why are you sympathetic to... to Because, you know, look... uh, They've been through a lot to a degree. They've been through two wars. They've been through, um, uh, they're, they're living with a president they can't stand. Uh, the, their economic reality is far different than mine was uh, in terms of their uh, fulfilling their hopes, their aspirations, and their dreams. Uh, it was much easier for my generation to do that because of an economic safety cushion. Um, and also because of the horrible damaging effects of social media, which I know I'm sounding like uh, uh, the, the old guy on the porch, but um, but I am the old guy on the porch, and I always have been. <laughs> I was the old guy on the porch when I was a teenager, so it really not a lot has changed. So um, I don't. That's why I'm sympathetic. I'm most sympathetic uh, to my partner, who, you know, a college graduate, uh, going out for jobs and just being. Uh, uh, the only things that were open were unpaid in- internships. And it was kind of like, are you effing kidding me? This is what, this is where your generation is. So I'm sympathetic as much as I have been critical. I, I, and, I, and, and look, I've lived with one for 10 years. So it's not as if I'm not getting something out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, well, well, you talk a lot into, about social media in white. And I... As a devotee of, of social media, particularly Twitter, I found that in the last six months to a year alone, I've realized that if I don't disconnect from this thing, it will kill me. Yes. Uh, I was uh, good True. friends with, with Andrew Breitbart, uh, mm-hmm. with whom I worked closely, and Andrew was connected at the hip to social media. I am firmly convinced that it was responsible for much of his high blood pressure and some of the mm-hmm. and some, a lot of the stress in his life. Yes. Uh, you know, social media, it, it's fascinating because you talk in the book about how you just tweeting things drives people up a wall and how you weren't really prepared for that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about sort of the impact of Twitter. and Well, Twitter what... was fun. See, this is what everyone forgets. Twitter, That's when right. it started out, was fun. And it was a place to make outrageous statements that didn't define your humanity. They were just jokes. And everything was in kind of quotation marks. It was kind of performative. And you said something kind of outrageous. Everyone kind of gasped and then moved on five seconds later. Um, it was, I never saw Twitter to be built as a place for me to virtue signal and talk about how wonderful I am and to attack other people for their opinions and for what they, what their beliefs are or to take them to task for being, you know, uh, this whole notion that we should all be happy about, uh, speech lockdown in a way, and that the language police are a good thing because it means that, well, 
no one can talk uh, in racist terms, in sexist terms, in homophobic terms. I don't believe that's really the, the, the thing that's going on. I believe there's this vast puritanism that's going on right now. And that's keeping everyone a child forever, coddling them from offensive opinions, from viewpoints that are different from yours. And I, th- and I, I notice the connection between this, uh, between what Twitter once was and what Twitter warped into. And as naughty and uh, disturbing for some Twitter was in its first days, people had a good time. People were not stressed out. Uh, And then people started to lose jobs because of tweets. Then people started to lose things because of tweets. And then there was this flowering of social justice warriors and a flowering of virtue signaling and uh, uh, calling out people to get their accounts canceled because they said this thing or that thing. And it really has. It has warped into something that was really fun into really a toxic nightmare. I keep it because my news feed is on it, and it's very easy. It, it, it's very uh, user-friendly yeah. in terms of like what I want on it. But And I do, I have really been careful at getting rid of people in terms of Okay, I don't want that toxicity in my life. I don't want this. I mean, I like people who are critical, who have opinions. But then when it gets into, um, you know, uh, we're at, uh, you know, level 100 of negativity and toxicity, then uh, I, can't, I can't bear it. But I have gotten into trouble for, for tweets of mine. And it just, that was kind of like the beginning of when I said, I'm in trouble for a tweet? Twitter is real? Twitter is this thing that you take so seriously. It was um, kind of the beginning of the end uh, for me. And uh, I, I rarely use it. I use it as a kind of promotional tool, though actually Facebook works better uh, than, than Twitter does for me. Um, and every now and then I'll have an opinion on a movie or something, but I not, I'm not the person, I'm not the, I don't have the Twitter persona that I once had. And I know that people are disappointed by that, but it's just, it, it's just too no, exhausting. It's rotten. It wrecks your life. I mean, the fact yeah, is... It rots your life. I it mean, does. There, there's so many people also out there who are using those old tweets from the playful days as sort of the sort of Damocles hanging Completely. over you, where if you, don't, if you do not just obey whatever is the diktat of the day, and the diktat changes daily. Like, we don't know what the rules are, and so the rules change on a routine basis. And so they'll hold some joke tweet that you had from 2009 over you. And then if you say the wrong thing, then they retweet it at you, and suddenly it's a pile-on. And I'm not talking about me personally. I'm talking about folks like James Gunn, right? James of Gunn course. was using Twitter in exactly this way back in 2009, yeah. 2010. And then he ran afoul of some folks politically, and suddenly he was seeing all of these tweets resurfaced, and the media were treating it as though it was actual news that he had made these gross jokes back in 2009, 2010, when he was doing shock comedy. And we're yeah. seeing it with Kevin Hart, too. I mean, just this, this, and it's not just Twitter anymore. It's this whole thing where we are going to apply whatever is the modern sensibility to something that someone said, not 80 years ago, but something that someone said 10 years ago and was considered perfectly mainstream in order to destroy their life and in order to cudgel them into line over here. It really is, it's devastating. I don't know how you can have a culture, a common culture, when this is the, the way that things go. Well, you can't. But I also have learned that, um, uh, I ultimately have learned that I don't really care that much. I have never deleted any of my tweets. And I am, I'm someone who accidentally uh, uh, tweeted for drugs when I thought I was texting <laughs> one night, where I was really wasted and my my partner was out. And he called me and said, oh, I'm going to be home in about an hour. And then I put the phone down and I said, oh, yeah, maybe. And so I was texting him. I said, uh, hey, come over, bring over some uh, drugs. 
sent sin, and then I went to bed, and the next day I woke up, and there was like a thousand, <laughs> and I had actually tweeted that out to my <laughs> 600,000 followers in the middle of the night. So, uh, and that's still up there. I have never deleted that tweet either. So I'm, I, you know, I find it toxic now. I, it really kind of makes me nervous in a way. Uh, but I have not deleted any tweets, and I am, I can't get, uh, I can't fall into the fear of like people finding tweets of mine from 2010, 2011, uh, and how, and how bad could they be after that one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, you order drugs on Twitter? I mean, what, what? I make a, I don't know. So, I mean, how weird is it for you to end up in a place where you're welcomed on Fox News, you come on shows like this one, uh, you, you're more welcomed, I would say, on the political right by a lot of folks than you have been on the political left now. You're obviously not politically conservative in like the traditional sense, right. I don't think. Right. So how, how did this I happen? Know. I don't know. How did this happen, Ben? Uh, I Again, I think as someone who saw himself as really not caring about politics at all, really not, um, being much more focused on writing novels and on art and on film, there's just something about this moment that has dragged everybody into it. And so I see myself as not a conservative, not a liberal. I'm certainly not a Republican. I'm certainly not a Democrat. Uh, I'm not on the right. I'm not on the left. Uh, I'm an observer. Um, and there are things going on in the culture right now that kind of drive me uh, to distraction and I'm annoyed by. And I talk about this on my podcast. And it mostly is about um, this puritanism that I see uh, washing through the public, and I don't know where that's going to go, um, with an overreactive, hysteric populace that is overreacting to everything, and including, I believe, Trump. And so, but that hit the nerve. Uh, when I talk about uh, it in other aspects of the culture, people will go, oh, yeah, maybe, whatever. But when you talk about this in terms of Trump, people go nuts. And they assume, because you're criticizing the mainstream media and you're criticizing people losing their shit over Trump, that you are, in fact, a Trump supporter and that you support Trump when that's not true. Um, but again, I feel the message is clear and I am happy to talk to anybody. I also don't live in a bubble, and this is something that I write about in white. I have plenty of friends who like Trump and I have plenty of friends who don't. As I said, I live with a millennial communist, so I hear 24-7 everything horrible about Trump. I have friends and acquaintances who really like Trump, so I have always lived in hearing both sides. And I understand why my friends who like Trump like Trump, and I understand why my friends who don't like Trump don't like Trump. But just because I have not taken a side doesn't mean that I'm on this side for Trump. And I think that it's been very interesting how open, in a way, uh, one side of the aisle has been in terms of having me on and talk about this book and how closed one side has been as well. Look, I've done, uh, I've been profiled with the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and Washington Post. But I also was profiled by Breitbart, and I think that's totally acceptable, and that's totally fine. And if some p person is going to pull their hair out and have, uh, you know, writhe in horror that I'm doing this, well, you know, you need to relax a little bit. Uh, I know my partner didn't like the notion that I would talk to Breitbart and certainly didn't like the idea that I was went on Fox and talked to Tucker Carlson um, and uh, was having a big problem with that. But then, you know... 
Bernie went on Fox, and it all kind of became okay for him in a way. <laughs> so uh, it's like, okay, yeah, I think you can do more Fox shows, he said. I think you should go do Steve Hilton and whoever whoever else wants you on. Um, and, uh, and I think that divide, I don't like that divide, that notion that we all can't be talking. I'm sure there are things you and I do not agree on. I'm sure there are things that we might strongly disagree on. But that doesn't mean that I can't have a conversation with you. I was highly, highly disturbed by what happened to you with Mark Duplass, who is someone I've had on my podcast. And that whole, I mean, not to you know bring it all up back out, but I just couldn't believe that there was this group think that sucked him in, made him rearrange his feelings about you, and then post them was kind of a, a real moment that I can still remember and I'm still talking about. Uh, I think it's the same thing that happened when David Lynch gave a, an interview uh, in 2018, said he thinks, well, who knows, maybe Donald Trump will be the greatest president in history. And then there was so much outrage that he had to, and who knows who talked to him, had to print out on Facebook an apology that he said this. I'm surprised that Lynch did that. I mean, I would think he's too old and doesn't really give a shit about that. But that's where we are. And I, and I hate that. And I, and I like the idea that people from different sides of the aisle can sit in a room like this and just talk about stuff. And it doesn't necessarily have to be about the thing, the, you know, DT. You know, it can be about a lot of other stuff. But it is true. The, the left is much, much more... Uh, prone to uh, not dealing with me with this book uh, than the right has been, but I don't. I, but I don't like that, and so I, I. I really. I've always felt that way. I talk to everybody. Well, in just a second, I want to ask you the final question, which is I want you to rank maybe your top five movies of all time, your five favorite movies. But if you want to hear Brett Easton Ellis's answer, then you actually have to be a Daily Wire subscriber. To subscribe, head on over to DailyWire.com. Click subscribe. You can hear the end of our conversation over there. Freddie Sinellis, thank you so much for stopping by. Really great to see you. Great to see you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Associate producer, Mathis Glover. Edited by Donovan Fowler. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Title graphics by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. 'll we'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure talk believes in American values and that free should mean you know like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.